Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 60 Minutes ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year, with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Last year, Champlain Tower South, a condominium in Surfside, Florida, collapsed in the middle of the night. 98 people were killed. More than a year later, no one knows why the 40-year-old building fell. I've been investigating failures for over 40 years, and this particular investigation, I can say, is one of the most complex and challenging that has ever been undertaken. The horrors of the Holocaust were met with various forms of resistance. Some insurgents fought back by smuggling food and weapons into Jewish ghettos. Tonight, we'll tell you about a very different kind of resistance group, made up of mostly writers and intellectuals living in what is now Vilnius, Lithuania. There, members risk death, smuggling artwork, books, and rare manuscripts, hiding them in underground bunkers. Oh, wow. Eighty years later, we found troves of hidden material still being discovered. Take a listen, as we did, to Sona Jobarte as she plays the Chora. With its 21 strings, played by just four fingers, two on each hand, it has a sound both foreign and familiar. I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Bill Whitaker. I'm Anderson Cooper. I'm Sharon Alfonsi. I'm John Wertheim. I'm Scott Pelley. Those stories and more tonight on 60 Minutes. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? 
Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. This past week, Hurricane Nicole, a Category 1 storm, forced residents in more than a dozen condominiums near Daytona Beach from their homes because officials declared the buildings unsafe. In September, Hurricane Ian caused more than $40 billion in damage across Florida. To cover the bill, it's widely expected insurance premiums are going to go up in the Sunshine State. Another disaster was already threatening to make housing unaffordable for many. Last year, Champlain Tower South, a 40-year-old condominium in the city of Surfside, collapsed in the middle of the night. 98 people were killed. More than a year later, no one knows why the building fell. We wondered why it was taking so long to find an answer. Tonight, you'll hear from the engineers leading the local and federal investigations and see how the Surfside mystery is impacting Florida condo owners. This is surveillance video from a nearby building. Look just beyond the pool. The middle of the condo collapses, disappearing into dust. Seconds later, the Oceanside wing seems to melt to the ground. It was about 1.30 in the morning. I am sound asleep, and I hear this awful noise, and I didn't know what it was. It felt like a mountain coming down. And two seconds later, all I remember is literally being thrown out of my bed and landing in front of the bed. Risa Rodriguez lived on the ninth floor in the part of the building that somehow remained standing. And there was a small balcony, so I stepped out, and my brain just couldn't compute what I was looking at. I said to myself, where's the building? You know, screaming at this time, where's the building? The elevators were gone, the stairwells clogged with concrete. And there's no way for you to get out of the building there's at no this point? There's no way for me to get out, and I think I just snapped into, okay, this is the situation. I'm terrified. I don't want to die tonight. So Rodriguez started navigating a way down, helping an elderly neighbor through dark hallways and over the debris and stairwells. It took more than two hours before they reached a floor low enough to be rescued with a ladder. Today, this is all that's left of the building, a concrete scar in the ground. The names of the victims are listed on a fence that surrounds the site. It includes retirees and young families. People went to sleep that night. And the safest spot in, in their world is your home, your bedroom. It wasn't the safest spot in the world. What answers do you want? What answers I want? I want the truth for my friends who died. They deserve an answer. 
The answer could be in this massive Miami warehouse where the remnants of Champlain Towers, 800 tons of it, is being stored. The facility is off limits to anyone except federal investigators who provided us with this video. They've started combing through the twisted steel and concrete for clues. This aggregate's pretty long and angular, isn't it? Glenn Bell is one of the team's lead investigators. Bell learned. spoke to us from the headquarters of the National Institute of Standards and Technology, the agency conducting the federal investigation. When do you think we will know why the building collapsed? So our timeline for this investigation was to finish our technical findings by the fall of 2023. Then we have to work on our report and recommendations, and we're looking for that the fall of 2024. A lot of people in Florida can't understand why this is taking as long as it is. I want them to know that we're working as fast as we can, and the implications for our findings are huge. We have to get this right. Based on what's found, Bell's team will recommend any necessary changes to building codes or construction methods nationwide. We have over 600 pieces of the structure that we're going to be doing a lot of testing on. And the more that you put together, the more the pieces of the puzzle begin to emerge and stories uh, emerge. What is the story that's emerged at this point? What do you know? Right now, we're pursuing about two dozen hypotheses about what the causes may have been. Small sample collection that helps Among the possibilities are shoddy construction, bad design, or faulty materials. Bell was on the engineering team that investigated the collapse of the World Trade Center following the 9-11 attack and came out of retirement to try and solve the Surfside mystery. I've been investigating failures for over 40 years, and this particular investigation I can say, is one of the most complex and challenging that has ever been undertaken. Why is that? Sometimes in building failures, the immediate causes are relatively apparent. We have no such apparent cause in Champlain Towers after well more than a year. Investigators started scanning pieces of the debris into a massive 3D database last spring. Preliminary lab tests on building materials began in August. Glenn Bell told us if investigators discover anything that poses a danger to other buildings, they will reveal it immediately. Is it possible after the investigation's complete that you won't know what caused the building to collapse? I'm confident that we will, but it will take a long time. Back in Surfside, Alan Kilsheimer told us the investigation doesn't need to take two more years. He was hired by the city of Surfside hours after the collapse to conduct its own investigation. We have to get to the trigger. I always say a building talks to you if you know how to listen to it, right? And it finds a way to support itself, or it finally says, I give up, I can't support it, I'll fall down. Kilsheimer, a renowned engineer, was part of the investigation after the Oklahoma City bombing and the 9-11 attack on the Pentagon. So where are you in the investigation right now? How far along? We're about eight months behind of where I want it to be. That's because Kilsheimer is still negotiating with the federal investigators for permission to do his own tests on the building samples locked up in that warehouse. Is this unusual? I've never run into it before. Not with the Pentagon, not with the Oklahoma City bombing? I've never run into it before. It was very unusual. It took until this past August before Alan Kilsheimer was allowed to do this. 
his first big on-site test. We watched as his team used 350 tons of steel plates to measure how much load the structural pilings at the site could handle. This building sat there for a very long time, right? It's been there for 40 years. It's full of people for 40 years. It has cars in it for 40 years. Buildings just don't fall down. With neither Kilsheimer or federal investigators providing answers, survivors and victims' families have come up with their own hypotheses. One is that weeks of vibrations from construction of that oval-shaped condo next door somehow compromised Champlain Tower South. This 2019 email from a resident to the city complained the digging was, quote, too close to our property, and we have concerns regarding the structure of our building. Some of the people who lived in the towers have expressed a lot of concern about vibrations of the building that was next to it being built. Is that something that you're looking into? These are just one or two of the many failure hypotheses that we're pursuing there. But we definitely are looking at it very carefully. The companies that built that condo were among the participants in a $1.1 billion settlement with survivors and victims' families. The insurers for the project paid $400 million, but said the development had no role in the collapse. The deal's no comfort to Shannon Gallagher. She lives in a condo that's next door to new construction in Surfside. This building's how old? 1965. 1965. How safe do you feel in it? I don't. I don't. And Gallagher is worried about the potential of vibrations from work planned just below her and has asked a Florida court to intervene. So you see this little two-story building. This building is going to be replaced with a building that's actually going to be significantly taller. It's going to be about 158 feet. You can literally feel vibrations when they were working on that building, and it's a further lot away. And you could, you could be standing and feel the building vibrate. I can hear people who live in Manhattan say, we build right next to each other, what's the problem? I understand development. But there's got to be some thought for who you're building next to. Families of the victims have also accused the condo board at Champlain Tower South of not immediately repairing major structural damage. In this 2018 report, an engineer hired by the condo board flagged failed waterproofing below the pool deck and cracking in columns in the garage. They needed $15 million to make the repair to the garage and the, the structure. They had 700000 Eric Glazer has practiced condo law in Florida for 30 years These were built in the and estimates he's trained 22,000 owners across the state in how to manage their condos. In order to get on the board, there's no prior qualifications that you're an accountant or you're an attorney or you have any prior business experience whatsoever. So what happens? Sometimes the budget isn't done right. Sometimes the spending isn't done right. Oftentimes the repairs are not done right. And Glazer told us condo boards can face intense pressure from neighbors, especially retirees, to keep costs low. That's not easy. Two-thirds of the condos in Florida are at least 30 years old. In October, this 50-year-old condo in Miami Beach was deemed unsafe and its residents ordered out when engineers found a crack in a main support beam had expanded. Doesn't anybody think eventually these buildings are going to need repair? And now the bills come due. And now the bills come due. Future condominiums never have to worry about another Surfside taking place. We can the scrutiny of condo boards, boards pushed Florida's legislature to pass sweeping condo laws. 110 yeshs, zero nays, Mr. Shut Speaker. Bill passes. 
The new requirements include structural inspections by engineers or architects for condos three stories or higher. Any recommended fixes must be made, and condo boards will have to set aside enough money for future repairs. Now you're having situations in in Florida where people on a fixed income are going to be asked to come up with thousands of dollars, and they don't have it. How will this change who comes to Florida, who lives in Florida? Well, the days of grandma and grandpa who are solely on Social Security coming to Florida and thinking that they're going to move into a condominium, that's gone forever. Glazer expects the developers, who have already transformed much of South Florida's coast into a canyon of glass and steel, will look to buy out older condos that can't afford repair, then tear them down and replace them with a more profitable luxury condominium. Less than a year after Champlain Towers collapsed, we had uh, a development uh, firm uh, come and make offers. What we were offered was significantly below market value. Robert Lisman and his family live two doors down from the collapse in a condo built by the same developers as Champlain Towers South. Do you think they thought these people are desperate, they're scared, and they're going to take these offers? Absolutely. They could buy our apartment for what it's worth, they could buy our building for what it's worth, and still make a killing off of it. Are you worried that another developer is going to come and say, hey, you know, most of you aren't going to be able to afford this, can I buy your apartment? I know that there's going to be a lot of owners that are going to look at that amount and then look at this offer that they're given and and go for whatever it is that they can get. As part of the settlement with homeowners, Raisa Rodriguez told us she got less than market value for the condo she lost. $70 million was paid to lawyers who represented survivors and victims' families. As for the property where Champlain Towers South once stood, It's been sold for $120 million to a developer from the Persian Gulf with plans to build a luxury condominium. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The horrors of the Holocaust were met with various forms of resistance. Some insurgents fought back by smuggling food and weapons into Jewish ghettos. Tonight, we'll tell you about a very different kind of resistance group, nicknamed the Paper Brigade. Made up mostly of writers and intellectuals living in what is now Vilnius, Lithuania's capital, the members risk death smuggling artwork, books, and rare manuscripts, hiding them in underground bunkers. Today, 80 years after the Paper Brigade fought back against cultural genocide, their heroics are still unfolding. 
There's an active search and rescue mission underway in Vilnius, where troves of hidden material continue to be uncovered, discovered, and recovered. My intention is not to seize it and take it and bring it someplace. It's to open it up so the public can see it. Put it out there. And put it out there in the world. Jonathan Brent is the executive director of YIVA, an institute based in New York which houses 24 million Jewish cultural artifacts. This past spring, we met him in Vilnius, where the YIVO Institute originated in 1925 and where some of its collection has been unaccounted for since World War II. <laughs> we looked on as Brent examined documents in a storage closet at Lithuania's National Library. This is very much an active investigation. Yes, this history is not over. Beneath the Hill of Three Crosses, Vilnius wears its history with grace. But its beauty masks a dark chapter. Today, the city is mostly Catholic. But before the Second World War, Vilnius was almost half Jewish and a magnet for artists, musicians, poets, and dramatists from all over Eastern Europe. They wrote mostly in Yiddish, the German-Hebrew dialect of Eastern European Jews. Most people in America know nothing of the great flourishing of Jewish culture that took place in this city. Then, in the summer of 1941, the Germans invaded the Soviet Union and occupied Lithuania. Many of the local citizens collaborated with the Nazis, and within six months, 50,000 of the 70,000 Vilnius Jews were killed. One of the worst slaughters during the Holocaust, some 90 to 95 percent of the Jewish population of Lithuania was murdered, brutally, cruelly, sadistically. Not often in camps, I gather. Shot, burned, hideous. The Nazis were also determined to extinguish the Jewish culture. And in Vilnius, there was no place more central to Jewish culture than YIVO, the Yiddish Scientific Institute, a Smithsonian of sorts, part museum, part library, part university. Its archive was as varied as it was massive. Sigmund Freud and Albert Einstein sat on YIVO's original board. Marc Chagall, who painted Vilnius's synagogues, opened its art wing. It strikes me someone had a unhappily prescient sense of all this, that you're creating this collection and capturing this history right before other people are trying to Wipe erase it. it. Yeah. Yes. Well, the Jews have had uh, quite a bit of history that prepared them for that eventuality. After the Germans invaded Vilnius, a special squad of Nazis commandeered Yivo's headquarters with designs of looting the art and rare books and burning everything else. But the Nazis needed help assessing what was valuable, so they rounded up 40 Jewish writers and artists, mockingly nicknamed the Paper Brigade, to sort through rooms upon rooms housing Yivo's collection. But the Paper Brigade had other ideas. They set aside the most significant manuscripts and art, including this sketch by Picasso, and organized a smuggling operation back to the ghetto. Homemade diapers sewn into their pants concealed the contraband from the Nazi guards. They had ten hiding places. The largest was underneath this house, 60 feet down, inaccessible only through a sewage tunnel. You've said that some people resisted by taking up arms or by smuggling food or medical supplies, and this was a form of resistance also. Yes, because they knew that if they are not going to survive, the Jewish people 
would have their cultural again to remember. Hadass Calderon is the granddaughter of Avram Sutzgever, an avant-garde poet in Vilnius in the 1930s. During the war, he became one of the leaders of the Paper Brigade. It was a nickname, a Paper Brigade. People in the ghetto laughed at them. Oh, you're smuggling papers. Smuggle food. We need food. What was the response to that? You have to understand that poetry, literature, and culture was part of their soul. Calderon grew up listening to her grandfather's war stories. So we invited her to meet us in Vilnius from her home in Israel. We retraced Suitsgiver's smuggling route, and she told us about the night her grandfather barely escaped the Nazi guard at the gate of the Jewish ghetto. He was knocked down, and the papers came out of him. And he took the gun, the guard, and said, what? You're not allowed to take anything in, anything. He says he told the guard that the papers were needed for kindling. And he let him in. Among the items Suitsgiver concealed, the original writings of Sholem Aleichem, known as the Mark Twain of Eastern Europe, whose stories inspired Fiddler on the Roof. In 1944, the Soviets liberated Lithuania and reclaimed the country as part of the Soviet Union. Only eight of the 40 members of the paper brigade had survived the war. This is an unbelievable picture of them coming back to see what can we save. Armed with a homemade wheelbarrow and shovels, they dug up the treasures from their hiding places. Your grandfather put himself at huge risk doing this. Did he ever discuss with you whether it was worth it or not? He felt that if he survived, then he has a mission hmm. to be the deliverer for the dead, for the stories, for the cultural. So that is the point of living. But with the Soviets now controlling Lithuania, Jewish life again came under assault. Everything the paper brigade risked their lives to protect was endangered for a second time. These treasures that connected you today with the past of 700 years ago gave you a sense of your own history and the value of it and importance of it. And the Soviets wanted desperately to destroy that and make you a Soviet citizen. Another form of erasure. Yes, absolutely. Avram Suitsgiver and others began a second secret operation. They stuffed their suitcases with books and enlisted couriers, redirecting materials to YIVO in New York City, where the Institute had relocated during the war. The rest of the material was assumed destroyed. But Antonis Olpis, a brave Catholic librarian, took up the cause in Vilnius. Risking his own life, Opus hid whatever was left behind in this empty Catholic church. But for almost 50 years, remnants of Vilnius's Jewish life vanished, and the city's Jewish past was not discussed. Vilnius University professor Mindaugas Kvetkauskis grew up Catholic and would become Lithuania's minister of culture. My knowledge about Jewish history and culture and, and Holocaust was very vague when I was a teenager. You weren't taught about the Holocaust in school? No, no. I had to discover this legacy by myself. He was 17 when he finally chanced upon faded Yiddish inscriptions in the old section of town. As his curiosity grew, he studied Yiddish and says he became intoxicated 
by the culture that it encompassed. Yiddish literature for me is this nexus of poetry, of beauty, and human destinies. It is full of voices of survivors, of victims, and also of heroes uh, who tried to rescue this culture, this community, against the evil of totalitarianism. Kvetkowskis heard whispers in Vilnius about a hidden literary bounty. But it wasn't until the breakup of the Soviet Union in the early 90s that Jewish culture could emerge from hiding. Kvetkowskis was invited inside the 18th century Catholic Church, where Opus, the brave librarian, had hidden the books. Through the years, Opus had created a book sanctuary, with literary works rescued and concealed from the Red Army, floor to ceiling under the dusty Baroque arches. The church is now empty and awaiting renovation. But we asked Kvetkowskis to take us there. Oh, wow. And show us where the books were hidden. Underground. In the confessional. Even in the bellows of the 18th century organ. I'm just trying to picture you walking into this unexplored book palace. Some of those books had bloodstains. Some of them had inscriptions made by the readers who most probably were killed. Today, these books are slowly bringing legacy back to life. So says Jonathan Brent, who became YIVO's director in 2009. The materials that YIVO had collected represented a body of materials which, if it were wiped out, would leave an absence that could never be filled in, and it would lead to total cultural deprivation for those Jews who might survive. The literary equivalent of Easter eggs, the rescued artifacts keep popping up in Lithuania. It's all triggered a familiar custody battle. The Lithuanians argued for the trove to stay in Lithuania. Yivo's executives insisted the material be reunited with its collection in New York. Fearing the documents would continue to deteriorate, Brent brokered a deal. Yivo would fund the preservation now and iron out ownership details later. These are fragments of books that were scooped out of the burnt rubble of the YIVO building, um, brought here to New York, um, preserved in these boxes. YIVO's director of archives in New York, Stephanie Halpern, just completed a seven-year, $7 million project overseeing the cataloging and digitizing of the Paper Brigade's entire collection. Do we know if the Paper Brigade preserved this? They did. And these are the surviving pages. It's not the full manuscript that we have. Only about a dozen or so pages. As new works are discovered, voices from a century ago are amplified. Consider the works of Avram Sutzgiver, who now, years after his death, is coming to be appreciated as a towering 20th century poet. His 1946 memoir was published in English just last year. They're learning Sutzkevel in many, many universities, not just in Lithuania, also in the United States and in Canada and in China and in Japan. Lithuania is now home to only 4,000 Jews, but it's on account of the paper brigade and continuing discoveries that the country is starting to reckon with the Nazi atrocities and its uncomfortable history. Even schools are now starting to teach about how Lithuania's Jews died and how they lived. Do you know the phrase CPR? Strikes me you're really bringing it back to life. 
I hope so, but we still lack wider recognition in our, in our society. In the course of last 20 years, mentality of our society became more open towards different versions of, of its own past. And in the process, Lithuanians have started learning about how an unlikely group of resistance fighters, both Jewish and Catholic, took the ultimate risk to assure arts and letters would survive. Tonight, we want to introduce you to a musician named Sona Jabarte, who introduced us to the beautiful sound and story of a centuries-old instrument called the kora. It's a string instrument from West Africa, part of a musical tradition that dates back to a 13th century empire and has been passed down strictly from father to son, man to man, in a special set of families ever since. Sona Jabarte was born into one of those families called Griots, the daughter of a Gambian father and a British mother. After hundreds of years of men, she is the first woman to master the Kora. In her performances around the world and in her work offstage, she says she is keeping tradition alive through the very act of breaking it. Take a listen, as we did, to Sona Jobarte as she plays the Kora. With its 21 strings, played by just four fingers, two on each hand, it has a sound both foreign and familiar. To me, it's like a harp. What do you compare it to? I don't actually compare it to anything because it's normal for me, right? I compare other things to the Cora. <laughs> <laughs> the song Sona played for us, called Yarabi, is a traditional love song. Sung in the Mandinka language. The tradition goes back to the 1200s, when a kingdom called the Mali Empire reigned over a large swath of West Africa, the territory of several modern-day countries. The musicians and storytellers in the empire were men called griots who counseled kings, resolved conflicts, and passed the legends down orally through the centuries. Women in griot families were singers, but it was only men who were allowed to play the instruments. That is until Sona Jobarte. At 39, she has become one of the foremost kora players in the world. Performing with her band across Europe, West Africa, and here in the United States, as we saw in this packed theater outside Boston. This is music, when you hear it, it still to this day carries this feeling of the empire at its, at its greatest. You get that feeling of royalty, you get that feeling of, you know, something that you're so proud about. 
What I think about with you is that you have broken tradition. It's not the way I see myself, mainly because of the fact of um, believing that tradition has to evolve. Traditions are not stagnant. They are things that grow with humanity, with society, and they always have. At one time, this instrument was not around, and then it became invented and it became something modern, and yet now it's considered traditional. Wow. So in terms of me being female, mm. this is a very central and important adaptation the tradition must take in order to be able to be relevant to our new society. Sona Jobarte comes to the griot tradition as both insider and outsider. Her mother is a British artist. Her father, the son of a legendary Gambian kora player whose griot family pedigree traces back to the 13th century. Though her parents' relationship didn't last, Sona grew up in both worlds, the UK and her grandfather's family compound in the Gambia, where she says her grandmother urged her to embrace her griot heritage, which, as a girl, meant singing. She used to keep telling me, you know, you have to sing, and I never wanted to sing. I hated singing with a passion. Why? You have the perfect voice. I didn't like it, never liked it. But your grandmother knew you had a great voice. I don't think she heard it much, because I refused, and I was a very stubborn child when it came to that. I would sit there for, mmm. But Sona was drawn to the Kora, and as a little kid, no one seemed to mind her learning some of the basics. She thinks her grandmother may have even liked the idea. In the UK, though, she studied a different musical tradition, classical cello, and she excelled, winning a scholarship at age 14 to a prestigious music boarding school. Were you one of the very few biracial kids in the school? The only person of color in the first school. The only yes. person? I was incredibly shy as a student. I never talked. That's my own way of surviving those years, I would say. Were you sad? Was it a yes. tough time? It was a very tough time. Yeah. Yeah. Happiness was not a major part of it. But she did find one point of connection to her life in the Gambia. The library in the school had a Cora there hanging on the wall. So I would be always looking at this thing. And then one day I decided to, t- to take it off the wall. It was a total mess, as you can imagine. Um, So what I started doing was every time I get a little bit of time where the place is quiet, I would take it off the wall, fix a string, put it back. And I was doing it, hoping nobody was going to notice. I keep taking it off the wall. (laughs) And there was one lady who uh, was one of the late late night workers. She said, why don't you take it to your room? And you can keep it there and just work on it. She's your hero. I had the permission. It became my sanity. And her calling. At 17, she decided she needed to study the Kora properly, which meant taking a personal risk, appealing to her father to pass the tradition down to her, his daughter, as his father had to him. They hadn't spent much time together, as Sanjali Jobarte had been living and performing mostly abroad. For years and years and years, Cora playing was mm-hmm. passed father to son, mm-hmm. father to son. Exactly. And along comes your daughter, yeah. Sona. Yeah. Did she say, Dad, will you teach me? Yeah, she said, what I really want to learn is the Cora. But girls didn't play the Cora at that point. What I told her, I said, I would like, if I close my eyes, I don't have to know the difference. Is it a man or Ooh. if you can do that for me? You just immediately said okay? I just immediately said okay. You never hesitated? I never hesitated, no. I don't want you to get distracted with this whole idea of being female. Don't let that get into your head. Don't let it dis- distract you. Your ambition needs to be a good chorus player, not a female chorus player, just a good chorus player. 
And so that was my challenge at the beginning. How hard did she work? She worked very, very hard. She started performing, sometimes with her father, and then with her own band. She got acceptance first in Europe. And then back in the Gambia with a song and video she released in 2015 to celebrate 50 years of Gambian independence. It's become the country's unofficial national anthem with more than 24 million views on YouTube. Minus the dancers, we found the Gambia much as Sona's video depicted it. A tiny country on Africa's west coast, it's a former British colony that's predominantly Muslim. Pre-colonial culture runs deep here. Sona Jabarti's name and heritage carry weight. And she's leaning into that ancient griot role of cultural leader to advocate for what she calls her purpose in life outside music, creating a new model of African education. She has founded a small school called the Gambia Academy, where students study dance, drumming, kora, of course, and another traditional griot instrument called the balaphone. The music gets the most attention because everyone sees it and likes and enjoys it. But they are learning all the same subjects as any other school is learning, you know, your math, your science, your geography, your history, all these things. However, how is that imparted to you? So continuous cultivation means what? Sona believes most education in Africa has been so deeply rooted in colonial models that its message to children is that their own legacy is somehow backward. So they feel to do things properly, we're going to do it in this way. And this, the, this way is always very much a European way. My challenge is now, can you get the same output, successful output, if we actually create, change the cultural orientation at the heart and center of the education system? From your elbow to your finger should be straight line, huh? And, and, so the students here wear traditional African uniforms. What the hand, okay, seven, eight. And Gambian culture is celebrated. Rohi and Bori have been coming to the school since it opened seven years ago. Here, there are no restrictions by gender or pedigree. Rohi is learning to play the kora, and Bori is in the advanced balaphone class. I like it. It makes me feel very happy when I'm playing. Are you a griot? No. Are you griot? No. And you're female. <laughs> Look at you both laughing, because you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And won't that be awfully difficult? You know, what a man can do, a woman also can do it. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not from a griot family, but I love to play kora. And when you love something, you can do it. Are you getting pushback from within the society? Yes. Of course, especially from older generations, yes. but um, it doesn't matter. Sona's first album was a mix of traditional and new songs. Her latest, which we saw her rehearsing with her band, is all original music. She writes all the parts herself, including songs about education, women, and her own identity. 
and she sings them in Mandinka. For me, when I sing in my own language, when I sing in the language that belongs to the Gambia, there is, I'm giving you a sense of pride that you never have before, that your language is as valuable. When I can go to an international audience, and I can have the whole audience in Germany, Spain, America, all over the world, and they're singing Mandinka. The power, she says, of music. It becomes a universal language. I can talk with anybody from anywhere in the world using music. I can't do that in any other form. And she's doing one more thing. Passing the tradition down to her 15-year-old son, Siddiqui, a talented balafon player. A next link from the griot past to its future. You had said to her, when I close my eyes, I don't want to hear a female. No. Chora player. Yeah. I want to hear a great chora player. Yeah. Okay, so close your eyes and tell us what you hear. I hear a great, great, great chora player. <laughs> I'm very, very proud. Definitely. Thank you so much. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. In Hollywood, there's a saying, nobody knows nothing in this business. Studios can invite audiences for sneak previews or test the box office appeal of the stars, but they can't predict a hit. Well, this past week's midterm elections have shown it's not only in the movie business that nobody knows nothing. In spite of many pollsters who dissected every aspect of the campaigns and candidates, in spite of focus groups probing the public psyche, the outcome when the ballots were tallied was a surprise to both parties. Voters were less angry and more moderate than the political soothsayers predicted. Turnout was high. Voters weren't turned off. And while we wait for some important races to be decided, we also wait to see how this new group of legislators will work for all of us. I'm Leslie Stahl. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes.
If you like 60 Minutes, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Listen to the 48 Hours podcast for shocking murder cases and compelling real-life dramas from one of television's most watched true crime shows. Go behind the scenes of each episode with award-winning CBS News correspondents and producers in Postmortem, a weekly deep dive. Listen to 48 Hours wherever you get your podcasts.